a Kubernetes cluster presents multiple potential attack surfaces. The cluster itself, a node running on that cluster, a pod running in the node, a container running in a pod. If you are managing your own Kubernetes cluster, you need to be aware of the security settings on your etcd, your API server, and your container build pipeline. Many of the security risks of a Kubernetes cluster can be avoided by using the default settings of Kubernetes, or by using a Kubernetes managed service from a cloud provider or an infrastructure company. But it is useful to know about the fundamentals of operating a secure cluster, so that you can hopefully avoid falling victim to the most common vulnerabilities. Liz Rice wrote the book Kubernetes Security with co-author Michael Hausenbloss, a previous guest on Software Engineering Daily. Liz works at Aqua Security, a company that develops security tools for cloud-native and containerized applications. In today's show, Liz gives an overview of the security risks of a Kubernetes cluster and provides some best practices including secret management, penetration testing, and container lifecycle management. Liz Rice, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Listeners may have studied container security, and we've done a show about container security, but we have not covered Kubernetes security. When you compare the world of containers to the world of Kubernetes, how does the security story change? A huge amount of it is the same because you are running containers in a Kubernetes environment. The things that you have to take into account in addition when you're running Kubernetes are really how do you make sure your Kubernetes setup itself is what that your control plane for Kubernetes is set up securely, that you've got permissions and access control set up securely. But a lot of the actual runtime security around containers is really very much the same, regardless of whether you're running under Kubernetes or just running a vanilla Docker container straight out of the box. What kinds of Kubernetes vulnerabilities does this present in contrast to the world with just containers? Yes. So Kubernetes is a complex distributed system. And like any complex system, it's going to have flaws. And that essentially means that there will be some vulnerabilities. Some of those vulnerabilities will be essentially software bugs. We saw one actually about a week before KubeCon in December, a pretty serious one revealed itself or was discovered you know, in the software itself. But an awful lot of the potential ways that an attacker might compromise a Kubernetes cluster come down much more to do with human error or configuration error. Over the last year or so, perhaps a little longer, we've seen a lot more focus from the Kubernetes community on making the default settings a bit more secure, um, moving more towards secure by default. So for example, if you install a modern version of Kubernetes, you're going to have role-based access control enabled by default. And that wasn't the case 18 months ago, let's say. So things are improving all the time, but it's still very possible to configure your cluster in a way that makes it disastrously accessible. Another really great example was um, the case of Tesla, probably a year or so ago now, where they inadvertently exposed their Kubernetes dashboard to the internet. 
really, it's a configuration error. It's human error. It's been made harder to make that kind of mistake now, but it's still possible. The rise of configuration errors seems to be related to the fact that Kubernetes is this system that has a lot of declarative code and configuration itself is declarative. Are there new kinds of paradigms for securing our systems that are new to people who are used to having more of a, an imperative programming system? Because I think in Kubernetes, you're more describing the way that you want the system to be rather than the uh, kind of like actual you know, programming your application where you, you've got this uh, imperative code and you're saying, okay, first do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. You know, configuration is more like, here's the state of affairs. That is a great question in terms of whether that approach, that taking that declarative approach has specifically different security impacts. I can't think of anything immediately that changes because we do it that way, except for the fact that yeah, things are going to change. They're not going to change, but they're going to be recreated for you without direct intervention. So for example, if you have a deployment in Kubernetes, that deployment might know to keep a certain number of instances of a pod up and running. And you can delete those pods. Let's say you discover that those pods are vulnerable. If you delete those pods, you actually need to know that they will be recreated again automatically because the deployment exists. You need to update the deployment to a newer version of those pods. Um, so I suppose there are things that you need to know how Kubernetes is going to be affected by the changes in that declarative configuration that you're making. Maybe sometimes those aren't entirely obvious. Kubernetes clusters have a variety of components. There's the cluster itself. There's the example of a node running on a cluster. You've got a pod running inside of a node. You've got a container running inside of a pod. Are all of these components potentially an attack surface? Yes, yes. You'd have to say that. I think in any system, any piece of software is a potential attack surface. One of the principles that we try to apply, well, in any system, but we can say particularly in a, in a containerized environment, the less software you're running, the better. That could be inside your containers. You want to try to minimize the code that's contained within each container image that you're deploying, because if code isn't there, nobody can exploit a vulnerability in that code. And the same thing also applies to each host in the cluster. The ideal situation is that the host is only running sufficient software to run your Kubernetes cluster and you know, maybe some supporting functions like logging. But you don't ideally want to have any other software installed on those machines exactly to reduce that attack surface. Securing the node where the master Kubernetes API server is running is quite important. Could you explain why that is such an important task for Kubernetes operators? Really comes down to the fact that if you have full control over the master node, if you have API control over all of the, uh, or full access to the full API through that master node, you effectively have, it's like root 
on your entire cluster. Now, there's lots of things that you can do, um, particularly with role-based access control that I, that I mentioned before, where today's defaults out of the box make it less likely that you're going to give away those root privileges to everything and everybody. But you do need to be careful about the access that you give away. Because I say it is effectively, people talk about Kubernetes as being a little bit like a distributed uh, kernel. And I think that's more of a metaphor than really, uh, you know, a fact. But you can think of admin access to the Kubernetes API as equivalent to root access to a machine. So that API access can give away everything. What are some security defaults we can put in place to protect that Kubernetes master API server? So a lot of the kind of really fundamental things are now set for you by default with the, certainly with the installers like KubeADM. They'll do things like ensure that you can't, or if you access that API anonymously, you can only query for basically things like health. You said by default, an anonymous user can't create or destroy pods or figure out what deployments you have running, figure out what namespaces you have. Another uh, important API, critical API in Kubernetes is the Kubelet API. So the Kubelet is the component that runs on every node and keeps your pods running, starts and stops pods on those on that node. And anybody who has access to that Kubelet API can effectively run software or inspect the existing running software or interfere with existing running software on that node. So again, by default, you won't have anonymous access to that Kubelet API, but you want to keep it that way. And there are tools out there to help you assess that. I Actually, uh, I'm a maintainer of a project called Kubebench, which is an open source tool for running the Center for Internet Security's benchmarks on the configuration of your Kubernetes cluster. So those benchmarks will basically check whether or not you have these configuration settings applied in a secure way. You might not want to follow every single one of those guidelines. You might have reasons why in your environment you want to do things differently, but at least running those benchmarks against your cluster will give you a good idea if there is anything badly wrong with your configuration. Let's say I've configured my cluster. I believe it to be secure and I run Kubernetes benchmarking. What is it going to test? What are some of the elements of the Kubernetes benchmarking tool that you work on? Yeah, so you can run Kubebench on, well, the idea is you would run it on each node in your cluster. So there are some different tests to run on the master node and on the the worker nodes. And they'll check the configuration that's been applied to the different Kubernetes components. So on the master node, it will be checking various settings on the API server and on your etcd components, on your um, on your worker nodes, it's going to be checking the configuration for Kubelet and all these various different components where they have configuration settings, Kubebench is essentially checking whether they are set up appropriately. So you would run that on your cluster sort of within each node. You can actually run that tool as a, a Kubernetes pod. So you can schedule that to run on each node in your cluster. 
Another tool that I'm involved with takes a different approach. This is something called Cube Hunter. Again, it's another open source tool. And it is basically penetration testing for Kubernetes clusters. So you can run this outside of your cluster and see what an attacker might see. It essentially tries to make network requests to the various different components within your cluster. And if it finds things that it can access, it will report those to you. And you can also run it inside a pod in your cluster. And then that's giving you the perspective of if an attacker managed to compromise a a pod, if somehow they managed to get inside one of your pods, perhaps through a vulnerability in some application that you're running in a container, if they've got that access, what can they then do on your Kubernetes cluster? And that's really interesting because of things like if you're a pod, you have um, you, you run as a service account. Um, it's essentially like an identity that that pod is running under. So if you compromise a pod, you can get hold of that service account credentials. And something like KubeHunter could then say, well, what can I do now I've got these credentials? And you can see what the kind of blast radius of that kind of attack might be. So it's pretty fun to play with. You're giving us some perspective into the open source world of Kubernetes in your discussion of these tools that you work on. So you've talked about two tools, the Kube Benchmark tool and the Kube Hunter tool. The first one is the benchmarking, just checking if you've got your configuration settings in a sane manner. And the other one is the pen testing tool. How have these open source tools changed over time? Yeah. So with Kubebench, we very much want to reflect what the CIS benchmark specifies. We've taken the view that, you know, we're trying, we're not trying to say what should the settings be. If we disagree with the, with the spec, we should go and report that and, you know, raise issues with the, um, the CIS benchmark itself, but we will implement that. And the CIS benchmark gets revised less frequently, let's say, than Kubernetes itself. So maybe every two or three Kubernetes releases, we get an updated version of the CIS benchmark published. I'm actually also involved as an author on on that particular benchmark. So I know the kind of processes that we're going through to get that spec released. And it's not something that we've been able to get out quite in step with the Kubernetes releases. But what we've seen over the last um, year or so is some of those, every release in Kubernetes will typically improve what the defaults are and the specs recommendations will be the same, but quite often you know, the defaults have, have improved. So it, you're more likely to, when you run the test, you're more likely to see the results you want to see um, just by running the, the out-of-the-box defaults. KubeHunter, on the other hand, um, basically the sky is the limit in terms of the different, the creativity, if you like, that a hacker could apply to trying to breach a cluster. You could apply the same creativity to inventing tests to go into KubeHunter and and try to um, exploit a cluster in in different ways. So uh, yeah, over time, I'm it has grown. We've seen new tests being added and new tests being suggested. And uh, long may that continue. Do you know if people ever use the KubeHunter pen testing tool on clusters that they don't own to see if they can find a vulnerability 
and install cryptocurrency mining on those <laughs> clusters. Well, not yeah. not to give the listeners any ideas. <laughs> yeah. So when we first released Cube Hunter, we did kind of we worried about that. But the truth is that if you're actually one of the bad guys, you've got tools anyway. There are lots of more general purpose exploit tools that can be used for good purposes and they can be used for bad purposes. And obviously, we we tell people, you shouldn't be running this except against your own cluster. We can't police that, unfortunately. But we took the view that, you know, this is a tool designed to help people who are operating Kubernetes clusters and aren't necessarily always security experts. It's a good idea to kind of democratize security by giving people tools that make it easier for them to see what potential holes there might be. Because you can guarantee that even if the good guys don't know what the holes are, the bad guys know how to find them. You know, they have these scripts that are trying to exploit any open port, any piece of software that they can uh, they can get a, a grip into. You know, you only have to stand up a website and you'll see attack well, attacks, you'll see requests from IP addresses that you find surprising. And that's because people are, you know, scanning the internet, looking for, for things they can steal, essentially. So that's happening anyway. We may as well arm the good guys with some tools to help them defend themselves. And that's the view we took with Hunter. To come back to configuration, etcd is a tool that is used for shared configuration in a Kubernetes cluster. What are the potential vulnerabilities that can come from an insecure etcd. Now, I am not sure whether this is still the case in the latest release, but it certainly used to be the case that etcd was not encrypted by default. And you store, essentially, etcd is storing all of the the state information for Kubernetes configuration. And it can also be the store for Kubernetes secrets doesn't have to be. You can set up other um, back-end storage solutions, you know, something like HashiCorp Vault or a key management system. But out of the box, your Kubernetes secrets will get stored in etcd. And they get uh, Base64 encoded, so they're not human readable, but Base64 encoding is not the same as encryption. It doesn't require any kind of key. And it would basically mean Anybody who can get onto that master node where you're, well, any node that's got uh, an etcd instance running on it could, if they can get at that etcd API, they can extract all your secrets, which is a very bad idea. And there may be reasons why you have people who can, who have rights to access, you know, the internal people who it makes legitimate sense to access some of your Kubernetes information, configuration information, but you don't have to give everybody the credentials to your password, uh, to your databases. Um, you, know, the, you really want to minimize who you give credentials to and who has access to those credentials. So etcd, not encrypting your etcd cluster and using it for secrets has certainly been a fairly common scenario that we've seen people do and not really realize the risk that they're running. You know, it's it's not like the worst thing in the world because your etcd cluster is probably not accessible directly on the internet, but 
anybody who does have access to that cluster or who manages to get access to that cluster, making it easy for them to get hold of those credentials is really opening the door wide open to giving them whatever confidential information you might have. My cluster consists of containers. Container images are built from code and put into a registry, and then they're taken from the registry and built into containers. What are the security vulnerabilities in that lifecycle? Cool. It's quite a long list. Yes. So when you build that image, you start from some source code and you're building your container image, you're probably pulling in some third-party dependencies. Maybe, you know, not all languages do, but, but most languages, most software out there is using some other third-party packages. And you want to know that you're not building in known vulnerabilities as you build those container images. So one step, whenever I'm asked what's the, you know, what's the first thing I should do to secure my container deployment, my go-to answer is use a vulnerability scanner. Make sure that your container images don't contain known high-severity uh, vulnerabilities. There are plenty of vulnerability scanners out there. There are commercial solutions like the one that we have at Aqua. There are free solutions. We actually have one called Microscanner. There are open source solutions like Claire. You know, so there's lots of options out there and some of them are free. Some of them are open source. There's no excuse not to do vulnerability scanning. And that is probably the single most, you know, if you pick one thing, that's probably the most effective thing you can do to secure your containers. Then you talked about, you know, putting them into a registry and then they're going to be pulled out of that registry at deploy time. A lot of, let's say, enterprise users will use a private registry to make it much, much harder to have the possibility of things like man-in-the-middle attacks or some issue that means that the software that you pull from that registry isn't exactly the same as the software that you push to that registry. Another solution to that kind of thing is essentially fingerprinting admission control. And, and this is actually part of what we have at Aqua, where we can fingerprint the image at the point where you're pushing it into the registry. And then when you pull it, if the fingerprint doesn't match, we won't allow it to be deployed. But making sure that that image that you run is exactly the image you expected to run. You know, that's another important step in the, the security of that, of that container. And then I guess the last thing that I would talk about when we're thinking about the life cycle of that container is runtime protection on that container. So this is something, this is kind of an advantage that you get when you move to containers. You're probably talking about even if you're not talking about microservices, you're probably decomposing your software into smaller components than you would have uh, run in a traditional monolithic environment. And oftentimes we are talking about microservices where we know exactly what that container is supposed to do. We can pretty easily learn or build a profile of what normal behavior for that container looks like. So say, for example, if you're running an Nginx container, the container image, you know, if you pulled the image from a public repository, you know, maybe you pulled that image from Docker Hub, it's based on a Linux distribution. So it's got lots of different executables in there, lots of the sort of standard things. But the only functionality you need from that container image is the Nginx executable itself. 
And if you're running a container that's supposed to be running Nginx, if you ever saw it doing anything other than Nginx, if you ever saw it trying to execute a different binary, that could well be a sign of an attack. It's certainly a red flag. And that's what security solutions like Aquas are doing at runtime to help people detect and prevent attacks at runtime in containers. There are also some open source projects around ensuring the integrity of container images. There is Tuff and Notary. Describe mm. what these projects do. Yes. So TUF stands for the update framework and Notary is an implementation of that framework. And it's about signing images, essentially, knowing that, again, it comes to this question of knowing that the image you're deploying is the software that you expect it to be and that it was signed by the provider that you expected it to be signed by, whether that's internal or some software provider. And also that it's the correct version of that software. So you want to know that a possible attack is that there's a an old version of a piece of software that has an exploitable vulnerability in it. And there's a newer version in which that vulnerability has been patched. And if an attacker were able to get you to deploy the old version when you thought you were deploying the new one, they would still have that exploit available to them. So one of the pieces of that, the tough spec or what Notary implements is making sure that you are getting the latest version. It's not just that it's signed, but it's the latest version that was signed. And there are these tools for detecting vulnerabilities in the containers, the container image scanner. Can you talk mm -hmm. in more detail about what a container image scanner does? Yeah. So... It starts from this, the idea of the vulnerability database. There is a thing called the NVD, the National Vulnerability Database, where every known or reported exploit is listed. They all have an identifier called a CVE, and you can the, the NVD maps between the CVE identifiers and the package and version in which that issue exists. So let's say you were looking at a package like SSL and you could go to the NVD and look up SSL and find which versions of that package have which vulnerabilities. There will be a set of vulnerabilities for, for every version. And at the sort of basic level, all vulnerability scanners are looking at the packages inside an image and checking them against a vulnerability database starting from the, the NVD and saying, well, does this, for each of these packages, what are the vulnerabilities and how severe are they? Now, the problem is that the NVD only knows about um, the kind of, uh, the version, the released version of a software package. And it doesn't know about patches that might have been applied. And different Linux distributions will have different approaches to patching. So, for example, uh, if you're using a, a Debian flavor of Linux, it will, um, they tend to not want to take a new version of packages terribly frequently, but they'll opt instead to patch or back apply that patch to the version of the software that they already have in their, in their version. So they have the fix for the vulnerability, but the NVD doesn't necessarily know about it. 
So the vulnerability scanner ideally wants to take into account not just the NVD, but also the information about patches that is made available by all these different um, distributions. And you get similar information from different software vendors and different languages and so on, where the NVD is a good sort of source of the raw information about what vulnerabilities are on which packages. But if you look at that and that alone, you'll have a tendency to see a lot of false positives. And by taking into account more of this information about um, patches, you would hopefully see fewer false positives. I think if anybody ever says you're going to see no false positives, then I wouldn't believe them. I would be highly skeptical. But taking into account more sources of information will give you a better um, level of accuracy in those vulnerability reports. But it's quite a complicated process. And it's, I think as a user, it's actually quite difficult because if you try three different vulnerability scanners and they all give you three different answers to how vulnerable your image is, you have to have trust in the supplier of that um, scanner. You know, how do you know, as, as perhaps a not necessarily a security expert, how do you know which of those reports is true? And that is basically just a matter of trust in your vendor. Image scanning is an example of a security procedure that is often integrated into the CI/CD process. Describe in more detail how awareness of security affects our continuous integration pipeline. So you quite often hear the term shifting left, and that, that's the idea of trying to apply security earlier in that pipeline. So if it's a left or right pipeline, we're shifting security left. And a big part of that idea is really saying, you know, we used to have a much more kind of monolithic approach where we'd, you know, somebody would write software, developers would write software, and then operations teams would figure out how that software is going to be deployed. And security teams come along right at the end of the process to kind of figure out whether or not machines need to be patched and and what firewall ports need to be opened and that kind of thing. With this move to CICD and a move to DevOps, or you could even say DevSecOps, we're talking about trying to move a lot of that thinking much earlier in the cycle. And where we can, much like trying to, you know, fix things earlier in the software development life cycle the earlier we can fix things the the quicker it is the, the sort of more quickly we're sort of iterating essentially the the less expensive it is so rather than if we apply security right at the end you know, maybe we create a container image and uh, it goes through testing and it goes through the staging environment and what have you and then at the point where we go to production it turns out that that image has got some vulnerability or a, a, a base image that the security team aren't happy with for whatever reason. The CI pipeline, anything else to say on that regard? Yeah, so we were, I was talking more sort of generally about this idea of shifting left and, and trying to make it so that developers can take more responsibility for security issues by doing things like if we do a vulnerability scan as part of the build process as part of the CICD process before they you know, push the image to the registry, then if there is a high severity vulnerability, they can fix that before it goes anywhere near getting deployed into production. And they can fix it straight away. And they know what it is that they have. Why do they need that third party dependency? So 
that's kind of the benefit of doing that scanning earlier on in the process. Okay. Well, let's talk about another best practice area. So one best practice around managing your containers and being security aware is building your container images to keep the container and its functionality small. And this gets into more of a software architecture question, but do you have any principles around keeping the container size down? We talked a little bit about attack surface earlier on, and and that's, you know, aside from just making an image smaller and easier and quicker to pull, you're also reducing the attack surface if you can can keep it small. So, um, you know, definitely something to try to do. I think to some extent it depends on the language that you're working in. You know, if you're using something like Go that can compile down to a standalone binary, then you can ship containers with just that binary in it. You know, maybe there's some supporting configuration files or something, but you don't need any other executables, and and that's great. But you can't do the same thing if you're using, you know, I don't know, a language like Node or Python where... or any language that doesn't compile down to a standalone binary, you are going to have to ship some supporting packages. And oftentimes the best way to do that is to ship a Linux base image that has then got those, whatever the requirements are for your language kind of pre-installed, and then the dependencies, and then your software. Part of this can be, you have choices about what your base image Linux distribution is. So Alpine is a you know very popular choice in the world of containers for reducing the size of that image because it's designed to be small. I would say that not all enterprises are comfortable running with Alpine Linux. Um, it's, I guess, less of a known entity. And you know what I was saying about vulnerability management and um, how it varies from distribution to distribution. It's yeah. quite interesting when we look at Alpine because you can see in the sort of manifests for a package that Alpine distributes, you can see that they've applied, I mean, it's all open source. You can see that they have applied patches to address vulnerabilities, but you have to go and do kind of quite a lot of research to check whether you agree with that patch. And, you know, probably 99 times out of 100, they're great patches and, and perfectly correct. But I think for that reason, some enterprises are nervous of using Alpine as that kind of base base image. Other choices, you know, you, you kind of, you can end up with a very bloated image because you chose a, a large base image distribution. So trying to, I, I would definitely say, you know, don't try to install extra software into that base image um, kind of classic thing that used to happen i don't see this so much anymore but you used to see people assuming that they're going to treat containers the same way they would treat a host and thinking that they're going to have to do things like ssh into a container and you don't need to do that right we're going to treat these containers as immutable you don't like something in that container you don't change software in it you destroy it rebuild the image and redeploy a new version of that container so that means that you don't need things like SSH installed into your base image. So you can definitely avoid putting in a lot of software that you might have otherwise had in your the machine image that you used for a host. 
containers get networked together, they are communicating with each other. What vulnerabilities can come from insecure Kubernetes network policy? Wow. So usually when we're talking about networking in a security context, the networking per se doesn't kind of create a vulnerability. It creates a way for somebody to get in or move around, um, particularly if they've already discovered a vulnerability. You know, suppose we've got a container that has got an exploit in it, so you've been able to compromise that container. Depending on what the network policies are, you may be able to access other containers. You may be able to access other host machines. You may or may not be able to kind of open access to the outside internet. Now, ideally, you want every container to only be able to perform the kind of network, you know, open to destinations that it needs to. So we see things like service meshes that will ensure that you've got encrypted like SSL connections between pairs of services so that anybody, nobody can intercept the traffic between them and so that services can only communicate with services that they're supposed to. And then that will mean that if you have got a compromised container, it's harder for the attacker to kind of use that to communicate. You know, they can only communicate with the containers that that container is supposed to communicate with. And similarly for sort of Kubernetes network policy, you can kind of, I'm not going to say it's a replacement for a full firewall, but you can use it to add a layer of firewall-like protection to limit the kinds of network traffic that can flow. And that's, you know, a, layer, a useful layer of defense. Probably not, it's really about limiting the blast radius if an attack happens. You touched on secret management a little bit earlier in our conversation about etcd. Every application has secrets to manage. Where are secrets stored on a Kubernetes cluster? And what kinds of policies should I have around managing these secrets? Right. So uh, Kubernetes secrets, you know, there are there is a, an object type in Kubernetes or a resource type in Kubernetes called a secret. So they are treated as, you know, first-class citizens within Kubernetes these days. But it really is a matter of how you store that secret. So you can, by default, it will go into the etcd cluster. And, and as we were discussing earlier, you'd want that etcd cluster to be encrypted if that's where you're storing your secrets. And it won't be encrypted by default. But you have other options as well. So you can plug in, the architecture allows for plugging in different storage solutions for those secrets. I know there's a, a plugin for HashiCorp Vault. So that means that your secret values is, I imagine there are others, I'm not sure exactly which ones are um, available today. But it means that your credentials, the actual secret values, are going to be stored in some component that is designed for storing these things, encrypted and ensuring that they're you know, accessible only by entities or people with the, the appropriate privileges. So that storage is, is really important. At Aqua, we do some interesting things around how you can inject secret. I mean, essentially, we enable that back-end integration with these different back-end stores. 
you know, name a backend store and, and we very likely have an integration with it and making sure that those secrets can then only be injected into the right containers at the right time. There are, Kubernetes actually supports a couple of different options for this. You can get the secret into the container either as an environment variable or as a file that's mounted into the pod as you as you start it, as it started. It's generally considered better practice to use the file version. If you use environment variables, there is a, it's fairly common to see that a piece of software that, you know, if it crashes or if a problem occurs, it's quite common to see the environment logged out. And if that log contains your secrets in the clear, which they would be if they're an environment variable, then Anybody who can see your logs can see your credentials and that you probably didn't want that to be the case. So for that reason, it's generally considered better practice to use the file approach where your code is going to need to read the secrets out of a file that's been mounted into the, into the container as it starts. But this, the file is actually a temporary file, so it's not actually written to disk, which is nice. Phrase you hear about containers is that they are cattle and not pets. You mm. should be able to lose any specific container and have it be replaced and not be concerned that this container went down and had some relevant state that you can't recover from losing. Should we take this to any particular extreme in in the case of security? Should we be cycling out our containers on a regular basis to ensure that there is not some sort of attacker who has nestled into our container system and you know just sitting there doing stuff or watching our traffic should we be cycling yeah. our containers yeah it's it's a really good idea there's there's actually a concept called reverse uptime which is the idea that you know, your containers should not be allowed to live beyond a certain number of, you know, probably days. But yes, just cycling them. And you could cycle them much more frequently. I once saw a, a, a demo, I think it was at a DockerCon, where they were cycling every five minutes just for, you know, entertainment value, I suppose, at a conference. But yes, absolutely. You, sh you should, it's good practice to cycle those containers. I mean, partly, if you've got an attack in progress, as you say, you know, anything that's untoward will be reset that that attacker's foothold is lost and it can also be um helping you with sort of non-malicious issues you know maybe you've got a container with a small memory leak happening you know you kill the container that issue goes away it's going to be constrained by um you know you've probably got c groups limiting the amount of memory it can use anyway but it, you know it's another nice thing you can do and you can also apply it, um, you know, we've been talking about it at the container level or, or at the pod level. You can also apply this cattle knots pets principles to your nodes, essentially just rebuilding and redeploying your nodes every so often. And it's exactly the same principle. If somebody had got a foothold into that node, well, you've, you've blown it away. So they, they're going to have to start again from scratch. But the other thing I really like about that approach is it's kind of a fire drill for what happens when your nodes just 
go down, which, you know, it's going to happen sometime, you know, so why not make sure that everything acts the way you expect it to, you know, do that under controlled conditions. And then you know that if something goes wrong, somebody, whatever happens in your cloud provider, that your everything is set up to deal with that. You work at Aqua Security and one subject of this show that recurs is the question of build versus buy. And we've explored many of the fundamental principles of Kubernetes and container security so far. What kinds of tools would I potentially get from a vendor like Aqua Security? So I think it's, you know, there is always that kind of tension between open source versus versus proprietary. And security is one of those things where, you know, enterprises have valuable data. They need to apply appropriate measures to protect that data. And, you know, they can either hire a whole load of people who are security experts, or they can use tools to reduce the amount that that needs to be done manually or or the amount of code that they would need to write to do it themselves. So if you come to a vendor like Aqua, we have things like the, the vulnerability scanning that we talked about before. We have image assurance, which is essentially making sure that the images you're running are the images that you expected to run, that they are, that they match precisely what you scanned. So they, they match the fingerprints that, that is the software you intended to deploy. Runtime protection. So making sure that containers behave the way they're expected to. And that if they start doing anything anomalous, you can either prevent that or get an alert on it. And that kind of thing, um, you know, particularly the runtime security, there is an open source solution called Falco, which can alert you to to issues, potential anomalies. But the prevention is not something that I'm aware of in, you know, there are other commercial solutions, but I'm not aware of any open source solutions that provide that prevention side of things. And I think the other thing that you're doing when you work with a vendor Part of it is just the integrated story. You know, you have everything pulled together in a in a nice dashboard, so you can see what the the security status of your deployment is. But you've also, you know, you're working with a team that you hope, you know, well that you can call on to, you know, we're not just throwing software over the wall and saying get on with it because oftentimes enterprises have complex security requirements or concerns and. They can come and talk to our team, you know, our solutions architects who've worked with dozens of other enterprises and they, they've probably seen the same problems and the same concerns before. So they know what the best practices are. And I think that's an important advantage that you get. You know, you're not just buying software. You're also getting the, the ability to leverage expertise that's been built up across working with dozens of other enterprises. Okay. Well, Liz Rice, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. And it's, of course, been a pleasure meeting you at KubeCon and having our various conversations. I hope to see you at the next one. Well, likewise, thank you so much for inviting me again. And uh, yeah, pleasure to spend this time with you. Wow.